Part Two C of Auguste Comte and Positivism. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Auguste Comte and Positivism, by John Stuart Mill, Part Two C. The necessity of a spiritual power, distinct and separate from the temporal government, is the essential principle of M. Comte's political scheme, as it may well be since the spiritual power is the only counterpoise he provides or tolerates to the absolute dominion of the civil rulers. Nothing can exceed his combined detestation and contempt for government by assemblies, and for parliamentary or representative institutions in any form. They are an expedient, in his opinion, only suited to a state of transition, and even that nowhere but in England. The attempt to naturalize them in France, or any continental nation, he regards as mischievous quackery. Louis Napoleon's usurpation is absolved, is made laudable to him, because it overthrew a representative government. Election of superiors by inferiors, except as a revolutionary expedient, is an abomination in his sight. Public functionaries of all kinds should name their successors, subject to the approbation of their own superiors, and giving public notice of the nomination so long beforehand as to admit of discussion, and the timely revocation of a wrong choice. But by the side of the temporal rulers he places another authority, with no power to command, but only to advise and remonstrate, the family being in his mind, as in that of Frenchmen generally, the foundation and essential type of all society, the separation of the two powers commences there. The spiritual, or moral and religious power, in a family, is the women of it. The positivist family is composed of the fundamental couple, their children, and the parents of the man, if alive. The whole government of the household, except as regards the education of the children, resides in the man. And even over that he has complete power, but should forbear to exert it. The part assigned to the women is to improve the man through his affections, and to bring up the children, who until the age of fourteen at which scientific instruction begins, are to be educated wholly by their mother. That women may be better fitted for these functions, they are peremptorily excluded from all others. No woman is to work for her living. Every woman is to be supported by her husband or her male relations, and if she has none of these, by the state. She is to have no powers of government, even domestic, and no property. Her legal rights of inheritance are preserved to her, that her feelings of duty may make her voluntarily forego them. There are to be no marriage portions, that women may no longer be sought in marriage from interested motives. Marriages are to be rigidly indissoluble, except for a single cause. It is remarkable that the bitterest enemy of divorce among all philosophers nevertheless allows it, in a case which the laws of England, and of other countries reproached by him with tolerating divorce, do not admit. Namely, when one of the parties has been sentenced to an infamizing punishment, involving loss of civil rights. It is monstrous that condemnation, even for life, to a felon's punishment, should leave an unhappy victim bound to, and in the wife's case under the legal authority of, the culprit. Monsieur Comte, could feel for the injustice in this special case, because it chanced to be the unfortunate situation of his Clotilde. Minor degrees of unworthiness may entitle the innocent party to a legal separation, but without the power of remarriage. 
second marriages indeed are not permitted by the positive religion there is to be no impediment to them by law but morality is to condemn them and every couple who are married religiously as well as civilly are to make a vow of eternal widowhood le veuvage éternel this absolute monogamy is in m comte's opinion essential to the complete fusion between two beings which is the essence of marriage and moreover eternal constancy is required by the posthumous adoration which is to be continuously paid by the survivor to one who though objectively dead still lives subjectively the domestic spiritual power which resides in the women of the family is chiefly concentrated in the most venerable of them the husband's mother while alive it has an auxiliary in the influence of age represented by the husband's father who is supposed to have passed the period of retirement from active life fixed by m comte for he fixes everything at sixty-three at which age the head of the family gives up the reins of authority to his son retaining only a consultative voice this domestic spiritual power being principally moral and confined to a private life requires the support and guidance of an intellectual power exterior to it the sphere of which will naturally be wider extending also to public life this consists of the clergy or priesthood for m comte is fond of borrowing the consecrated expressions of catholicism to denote the nearest equivalents which his own system affords the clergy are the theoretic or philosophical class and are supported by an endowment from the state voted periodically but administered by themselves like women they are to be excluded from all riches and from all participation in power except the absolute power of each over his own household they are neither to inherit nor to receive emolument from any of their functions or from their writings or teachings of any description but are to live solely on their small salaries this m comte deems necessary to the complete disinterestedness of their counsel to have the confidence of the masses they must like the masses be poor their exclusion from political and from all other practical occupations is indispensable for the same reason and for others equally peremptory those occupations are he contends incompatible with the habits of mind necessary to philosophers a practical position either private or public chains the mind to specialities and details while a philosopher's business is with general truths and connected views d'ensemble these again require an habitual abstraction from details which unfits the mind for judging well and rapidly of individual cases the same person cannot be both a good theorist and a good practitioner or ruler though practitioners and rulers ought to have a solid theoretic education the two kinds of function must be absolutely exclusive of one another to attempt them both is inconsistent with fitness for either but as men may mistake their vocation up to the age of thirty-five they are allowed to change their career to the clergy is entrusted the theoretic or scientific instruction of youth the medical art also is to be in their hands since no one is fit to be a physician who does not study and understand the whole man moral as well as physical m comte has a contemptuous opinion of the existing race of physicians who he says deserve no higher name than that of veterinaires since they concern themselves with man only in his animal and not in his human character in his last years m comte as we learn from dr robinet's volume indulged in the wildest speculations on medical science 
declaring all maladies to be one and the same disease, the disturbance or destruction of l'unité cerebrale. The other functions of the clergy are moral, much more than intellectual. They are the spiritual directors and venerated advisers of the active or practical classes, including the political. They are the mediators, in all social differences, between laborers, for instance, and their employers. They are to advise and admonish on all important violations of the moral law. Especially it devolves on them to keep the rich and powerful to the performance of their moral duties towards their inferiors. If private remonstrance fails, public denunciation is to follow. In extreme cases they may proceed to the length of excommunication, which, though it only operates through opinion, yet, if it carries opinion with it, may, as M. Comte complacently observes, be of such powerful efficacy that the richest man may be driven to produce his subsistence by his own manual labour, through the impossibility of inducing any other person to work for him. In this, as in all other cases, the priesthood depends for its authority on carrying with it the mass of the people, those who, possessing no accumulations, live on the wages of daily labour popularly but incorrectly termed the working classes, and by French writers, in their Roman law phraseology, proletaires. These, therefore, who are not allowed the smallest political rights, are incorporated into the spiritual power, of which they form, after women and the clergy, the third element. It remains to give an account of the temporal power, composed of the rich and the employers of labour, two classes who, in M. Comte's system, are reduced to one, for he allows of no idle rich. A life made up of mere amusement and self-indulgence, though not interdicted by law, is to be deemed so disgraceful that nobody with the smallest sense of shame would choose to be guilty of it. Here we think M. Comte has lighted on a true principle, towards which the tone of opinion in modern Europe is more and more tending, and which is destined to be one of the constitutive principles of regenerated society. We believe, for example, with him, that in the future there will be no class of landlords living at ease on their rents, but every landlord will be a capitalist trained to agriculture, himself superintending and directing the cultivation of his estate. No one but he who guides the work should have the control of the tools. In M. Comte's system, the rich, as a rule, consist of the captains of industry. But the rule is not entirely without exception, for M. Comte recognizes other useful modes of employing riches. In particular, one of his favorite ideas is that of an order of chivalry, composed of the most generous and self-devoted of the rich, voluntarily dedicating themselves, like knights errant of old, to the redressing of wrongs and the protection of the weak and oppressed. He remarks that oppression in modern life can seldom reach or even venture to attack the life or liberty of its victims. He forgets the case of domestic tyranny but only their pecuniary means, and it is therefore by the purse chiefly that individuals can usefully interpose, as they formerly did by the sword. The occupation, however, of nearly all the rich will be the direction of labor, and for this work they will be educated. Reciprocally, it is in M. Comte's opinion essential that all directors of labor should be rich. Capital, in which he includes land, should be concentrated in a few holders, so that every capitalist may conduct the most extensive operations which one mind is capable of superintending. This is not only demanded by good economy, in order to take the utmost advantage of a rare kind of practical ability, 
but it necessarily follows from the principle of M. Comte's scheme, which regards a capitalist as a public functionary. M. Comte's conception of the relation of capital to society is essentially that of socialists, but he would bring about by education and opinion what they aim at effecting by positive institution. The owner of capital is by no means to consider himself its absolute proprietor. Legally, he is not to be controlled in his dealings with it, for power should be in proportion to responsibility. But it does not belong to him for his own use. He is merely entrusted by society with a portion of the accumulations made by the past providence of mankind, to be administered for the benefit of the present generation and of posterity, under the obligation of preserving them unimpaired, and handing them down more or less augmented to our successors. He is not entitled to dissipate them, or divert them from the service of humanity to his own pleasures, nor has he a moral right to consume on himself the whole even of his profits. He is bound in conscience, if they exceed his reasonable wants, to employ the surplus in improving either the efficiency of his operations, or the physical and mental condition of his labourers. The portion of his gains which he may appropriate to his own use must be decided by himself, under accountability to opinion, and opinion ought not to look very narrowly into the matter, nor hold him to a rigid reckoning for any moderate indulgence of luxury or ostentation since under the great responsibilities that will be imposed on him, the position of an employer of labour will be so much less desirable to any one in whom the instincts of pride and vanity are not strong, than the herus insouciance of a labourer, that those instincts must be to a certain degree indulged, or no one would undertake the office. With this limitation, every employer is a mere administrator of his possessions, for his workpeople and for society at large. If he indulges himself lavishly, without reserving an ample remuneration for all who are employed under him, he is morally culpable, and will incur sacerdotal admonition. This state of things necessarily implies that capital should be in few hands, because, as M. Comte observes, without great riches the obligations which society ought to impose could not be fulfilled without an amount of personal abnegation that it would be hopeless to expect. If a person is conspicuously qualified for the conduct of an industrial enterprise, but destitute of the fortune necessary for undertaking it, M. Comte recommends that he should be enriched by subscription, or in cases of sufficient importance by the State. Small landed proprietors and capitalists, and the middle classes altogether, he regards as a parasitic growth, destined to disappear, the best of the body becoming large capitalists, and the remainder proletaires. Society will consist only of rich and poor, and it will be the business of the rich to make the best possible lot for the poor. The remuneration of the labourers will continue, as at present, to be a matter of voluntary arrangement between them and their employers, the last resort on either side being refusal of cooperation, refus de concours, in other words, a strike or a lockout with the sacerdotal order for mediators in case of need. But though wages are to be an affair of free contract, their standard is not to be the competition of the market, but the application of the products in equitable proportion between the wants of the labourers and the wants and dignity of the employer. As it is one of M. Comte's principles that a question cannot be usefully proposed without an attempt at a solution, 
He gives his ideas from the beginning as to what the normal income of a laboring family should be. They are on such a scale that, until some great extension shall have taken place in the scientific resources of mankind, it is no wonder he thinks it necessary to limit as much as possible the number of those who are to be supported by what is left of the produce. In the first place, the laborer's dwelling, which is to consist of seven rooms, is, with all that it contains, to be his own property. It is the only landed property he is allowed to possess. But every family should be the absolute owner of all things which are destined for its exclusive use. Lodging being thus independently provided for, and education and medical attendance being secured gratuitously by the general arrangements of society, the pay of the labourer is to consist of two portions, the one monthly, and a fixed amount, the other weekly, and proportioned to the produce of his labour. The former M. Comte fixes at one hundred francs, four pounds, for a month of twenty-eight days, being fifty-two pounds a year and the rate of piecework should be such as to make the other part amount to an average of seven francs five shillings sixpence per working day agreeably to m comte's rule that every public functionary should appoint his successor the capitalist has unlimited power of transmitting his capital by gift or bequest after his own death or retirement in general it will be best bestowed entire upon one person unless the business will advantageously admit of subdivision. He will naturally leave it to one or more of his sons, if sufficiently qualified, and rightly so, hereditary being, in M. Comte's opinion, preferable to acquired wealth, as being usually more generously administered. But merely as his sons they have no moral right to it. M. Comte here recognizes another of the principles on which we believe that the constitution of regenerated society will rest. He maintains, as others in the present generation have done, that the father owes nothing to his son except a good education, and pecuniary aid sufficient for an advantageous start in life, that he is entitled, and may be morally bound, to leave the bulk of his fortune to some other properly selected person or persons, whom he judges likely to make a more beneficial use of it. This is the first of three important points, in which M. Comte's theory of the family, wrong as we deem it in its foundations, is in advance of prevailing theories and existing institutions. The second is the reintroduction of adoption, not only in default of children, but to fulfill the purposes and satisfy the sympathetic wants to which such children as there are may happen to be inadequate. The third is a most important point the incorporation of domestics as substantive members of the family. There is hardly any part of the present constitution of society more essentially vicious, and morally injurious to both parties, than the relation between masters and servants. To make this a really human and a moral relation is one of the principal desiderata in social improvement. The feeling of the vulgar of all classes that domestic service has anything in it peculiarly mean is a feeling than which there is none meaner. In the feudal ages, youthful nobles of the highest rank thought themselves honored by officiating in what is now called a menial capacity, about the persons of superiors of both sexes, for whom they felt respect. And as M. Comte observes, there are many families who can in no other way so usefully serve humanity as by ministering to the bodily wants of other families, called to functions which require the devotion of all their thoughts. 
We will add, by way of supplement to M. Comte's doctrine, that much of the daily physical work of a household, even in opulent families, if silly notions of degradation common to all ranks did not interfere, might very advantageously be performed by the family itself, at least by its younger members, to whom it would give healthful exercise of the bodily powers, which has now to be sought in modes far less useful, and also a familiar acquaintance with the real work of the world and a moral willingness to take their share of its burthens, which, in the great majority of the better-off classes, do not now get cultivated at all. We have still to speak of the directly political functions of the rich, or, as M. Comte terms them, the patriciate. The entire political government is to be in their hands. First, however, the existing nations are to be broken up into small republics, the largest not exceeding the size of Belgium, Portugal, or Tuscany any larger nationalities being incompatible with the unity of wants and feelings which is required not only to give due strength to the sentiment of patriotism always strongest in small states but to prevent undue compression for no territory m comte thinks can without oppression be governed from a distant centre algeria therefore is to be given up to the arabs corsica to its inhabitants and france proper is to be before the end of the century divided into seventeen republics, corresponding to the number of considerable towns. Paris, however, need it be said, succeeding to Rome as the religious metropolis of the world. Ireland, Scotland, and Wales are to be separated from England, which is of course to detach itself from all its transmarine dependencies. In each state thus constituted, the powers of government are to be vested in a triumvirate of the three principal bankers, who are to take the foreign, home, and financial departments respectively. How they are to conduct the government and remain bankers does not clearly appear, but it must be intended that they should combine both offices, for they are to receive no pecuniary remuneration for the political one. Their power is to amount to a dictatorship, M. Comte's own word, and he is hardly justified in saying that he gives political power to the rich, since he gives it over the rich and every one else to three individuals of the number not even chosen by the rest, but named by their predecessors. As a check on the dictators there is to be complete freedom of speech, writing, printing, and voluntary association, and all important acts of the government, except in cases of emergency, are to be announced sufficiently long beforehand to ensure ample discussion. This, and the influences of the spiritual power, are the only guarantees provided against misgovernment. When we consider that the complete dominion of every nation of mankind is thus handed over to only four men, for the spiritual power is to be under the absolute and undivided control of a single pontiff for the whole human race, one is appalled at the picture of entire subjugation and slavery, which is recommended to us as the last and highest result of the evolution of humanity. But the conception rises to the terrific, when we are told the mode in which the single high priest of humanity is intended to use his authority. It is the most warning example we know into what frightful aberrations a powerful and comprehensive mind may be led by the exclusive following out of a single idea. The single idea of M. Comte on this subject is that the intellect should be wholly subordinated to the feelings, or, to translate the meaning out of sentimental into logical language, that the exercise of the intellect, as of all our other faculties, should have for its sole object the general good. Every other employment of it should be accounted not only idle and frivolous, but morally culpable. 
Being indebted wholly to humanity for the cultivation to which we owe our mental powers, we are bound in return to consecrate them wholly to her service. Having made up his mind that this ought to be, there is with M. Comte but one step to concluding that the grand pontiff of humanity must take care that it shall be, and on this foundation he organizes an elaborate system for the total suppression of all independent thought. He does not, indeed, invoke the arm of the law, or call for any prohibitions. The clergy are to have no monopoly. Anyone else may cultivate science if he can, may write and publish if he can find readers, may give private instruction if anybody consents to receive it. But since the sacerdotal body will absorb into itself all but those whom it deems either intellectually or morally unequal to the vocation, all rival teachers will, as he calculates, be so discredited beforehand that their competition will not be formidable. Within the body itself the high priest has it in his power to make sure that there shall be no opinions, and no exercise of mind, but such as he approves, for he alone decides the duties and local residence of all its members, and can even eject them from the body. Before electing to be under this rule, we feel a natural curiosity to know in what manner it is to be exercised. Humanity has only yet had one pontiff, whose mental qualifications for the post are not likely to be often surpassed. M. Comte himself. It is of some importance to know what are the ideas of this high priest, concerning the moral and religious government of the human intellect. One of the doctrines which M. Comte most strenuously enforces in his later writings is that, during the preliminary evolution of humanity, terminated by the foundation of positivism, the free development of our forces of all kinds was the important matter, but that from this time forward the principal need is to regulate them. Formerly the danger was of their being insufficient, but henceforth of their being abused. Let us express in passing our entire dissent from this doctrine. Whoever thinks that the wretched education which mankind has yet received calls forth their mental powers, except those of a select few, in a sufficient or even tolerable degree, must be very easily satisfied. And the abuse of them, far from becoming proportionally greater as knowledge and mental capacity increase, becomes rapidly less, provided always that the diffusion of those qualities keeps pace with their growth. The abuse of intellectual power is only to be dreaded when society is divided between a few highly cultivated intellects and an ignorant and stupid multitude. But mental power is a thing which M. Comte does not want or wants infinitely less than he wants submission and obedience. Of all the ingredients of human nature, he continually says, the intellect most needs to be disciplined and reined in. It is the most turbulent, le plus perturbateur, of all the mental elements, more so than even the selfish instincts. Throughout the whole modern transition, beginning with ancient Greece, for M. Comte tells us that we have always been in a state of revolutionary transition since then, the intellect has been in a state of systematic insurrection against le cour. The metaphysicians and literati, lettres, after helping to pull down the old religion and social order, are rootedly hostile to the construction of the new, and desiring only to prolong the existing scepticism and intellectual anarchy, which secure to them a cheap social ascendancy, without the labor of earning it by solid scientific preparation. The scientific class, from whom better might have been expected, are, if possible, worse. 
void of enlarged views, despising all that is too large for their comprehension, devoted exclusively each to his special science, contemptuously indifferent to moral and political interests, their sole aim is to acquire an easy reputation, and in France, through paid academies and professorships, personal lucre, by pushing their sciences into idle and useless inquiries, speculation oisise, of no value to the real interests of mankind, and tending to divert the thoughts from them. One of the duties most incumbent on opinion and on the spiritual power is to stigmatize as immoral and effectually suppress these useless employments of the speculative faculties. All exercise of thought should be abstained from, which has not some beneficial tendency, some actual utility to mankind. M. Comte, of course, is not the man to say that it must be a merely material utility. If a speculation, though it has no doctrinal, has a logical value, if it throws any light on universal method, it is still more deserving of cultivation than if its usefulness was merely practical. But, either as method or as doctrine, it must bring forth fruits to humanity, otherwise it is not only contemptible, but criminal. End of Part 2C Recording by Bill Borst